Father, we thank you for this day, and so far we have seen many evidences of your grace, and I pray that those who are watching from home because of sickness or necessity, I I pray that you would encourage them uh, and give them a sense that uh, we miss them and we are eagerly anticipating their return so that we can gather again as a church with our full number. I pray that you would strengthen us now with everyone in this room, uh, providentially ordained by your will to be here at this moment to hear this word. I pray that we would be in submission to your word and that the words I say about your word would help your people understand. And if there are those here who have not yet trusted in you, Through your son, Jesus, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. This will, in fact, be the last sermon in this series on these two verses, verse 16 and 17. I hope it's been helpful to you. In many ways, Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17, pair up very nicely with uh, Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 14. And both those passages are very, very important to me as your pastor and to us as a church in clarifying what it is we're even trying to do on a Sunday morning. Have you ever paused and asked yourself that question, why Sunday morning? What are we even trying to do? And I would argue verses like this give us a very clear vision into what exactly we're supposed to be doing. The Lord has many things to say to us about what we are to be as a church. Let me read them for us, and then we will begin. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Now, it's a bit of a cheat, honestly, to cover verse 16 in what came out to be five sermons, and then to spend one sermon on verse 17. But that's not unintentional. In fact, it, it, is, it is very warranted, I think. Uh, and I think the reason verse 17 exists and the motivation for living the way that verse 17 explains to us is, in fact, the commands of 16. Notice how they relate, if you're looking at it. So we're to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly as we teach and admonish and we sing. And then Paul expands it. He broadens the scope from just the teaching and admonishing and singing to whatever you do. So any verb that you can insert into that blank of whatever you do 
That's what Paul is talking about. It's no longer just the teaching and admonishing and singing what may have the flavor of our Sunday morning gatherings, as I discussed earlier. Now he's, he's taking it out of the context of what you may do that you would put under the banner of church stuff, and he's broadening it out to anything and everything you do. So this is the way that it, it works. It, you, you see that you're supposed to be doing everything, anything, in the name of Jesus. Last week I mentioned that uh, even loading and unloading the dishwasher in the name of Jesus. I, I said we weren't talking about that this that week, but now we are. It, it really does apply to anything and everything. So armed with this way of thinking given to us in verse 16 that, that particularly touches on the family of God and a life built on and lived through the word of Christ, now we are able to do verse 17. We're, to, we're able to live in the way that verse 17 commands. Otherwise, I would argue this, if you isolate verse 17 and you just take it by itself, it becomes massively daunting and even discouraging, does it not? Do everything in the name of Jesus and implication being, and also in everything, give thanks to the Father through him. That's very daunting and it's, it's a huge command. And I would say, if you're not rooted in the way given to us in verse 16, uh, verse 17 is not only impossible, but it doesn't make any sense. So just to refresh your mind about what we said regarding verse 16, we discussed what is the word of Christ. This, he just gives us this phrase. He doesn't really define it. So we spent a whole sermon answering that question. And then we discussed the love of God, which is kind of underneath all of this and uh, this is why I think we should give thanks to God, because He has loved us and blessed us in all these ways. And then we talked about what does it mean to let it dwell in us richly. And then we discussed how we teach and admonish one another. And then we talked about how we sing and how singing is subservient to the desire of making the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. So that's where we've gone so far. And now we look at verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or deed. What you need to note, especially if you're familiar with Colossians, and I hope you are, is that the whole chapter uh, encapsulates all of the Christian life. He, he begins in verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then verse 12, he says, put on then. So he, 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 he gives us a summary, as it were, of all of what it means to live a holy life. Don't do these things, if you will, uh, more put off this way of thinking and put off these actions and then put on these other things. Uh, think this way. Do these things. He summarizes all of it. And now he's coming to the close of that whole section. He shifts gears in verse 15 and then he summarizes everything in verses 16 and 17. So understand the flow. This verse, verse 17, is the last statement of his general exhortations before he gets to specifics for people in different life situations. And so because of that, it's intentionally broad. And as I've said with respect to other passages, it means probably what you think it means. Whatever you do in word or deed. He's quite literally and intentionally talking about every moment of your waking life and even how you sleep. All of it. 
everything. He's not speaking in a narrow sense of what a church does when we gather. That's, that's the alternative, how some people take this verse. But there's no one another, that, that, that also important word that we find in the New Testament. He just says, whatever you do. Not whatever you do with one another. He's meaning all of us. It's kind of a crescendo, if you see. So beginning in verse 5, he talks about the heart of an individual person and then continues that through verse 12 and the conclusion of that section. And then he summarizes how we all together ought to live this Christian life in verse 16, 15 and 16 together, sort of. And then he broadens it out to anything and everything. Just in case I didn't cover any nook and cranny of your life, I'm going to give you verse 17 and tell you whatever you do, Here's a possible literal translation. And anything that any one of you may ever be doing, in word or deed, anything that any one of you may ever be doing, and this, this phrase, word or deed, is what's called a merism. Uh, it's sort of like we find in the Old Testament, and you're going out and you're coming in, or, or heaven and earth means everything, or head to toe. Uh, so Paul is not forgetting thought, so he says, in word and deed. So uh, good news, I don't have to think uh, in the name of Jesus. I don't have to feel in the name of Jesus. He's not summarizing so fast that he forgot thoughts and emotions and all that other thing. He says, from word and deed, it's, it's, a, it's a pairing that means all of your life, anything. It's a phrase that indicates again that he really does mean everything. And so I'll say it in a way that makes the same point using maybe modern vernacular. And whatever you do, cradle to the grave. Or again, whatever you do, from dusk till dawn. Or, and whatever you do, from kindergarten to retirement. He's being intentionally broadened. He's trying, not with word and deed doesn't narrow it, it actually broadens it for us. So, Keep that in mind as we consider. And, and I want to pause on this point right before we even get to the content of the exhortation. The content of the exhortation is that we do all of these things in the name of Jesus. But before we get there, I want to just discuss the fact that this command touches on literally everything and anything in your life. It would be rash to move on and not to consider this and to pause and really mull on this a bit. You have commands from God that directly relate to every single thing in your entire life. Even the life of the mind. God has commands about how you feel, about what you think, and not just commands of do's and don'ts about things not to think or things to think, but whatever you're thinking about, do it in this way. That's how broad this command is, and I want you to feel that and sense that. I'm sorry to pause here for those of you that see this as as a simple thing or, or something that's obvious, but is it really that simple or easy? Is this something we do a good job realizing and walking in an awareness of that that God has will and and clear expectations for how you're to do every single thing? Is that how you think of God? That is the God who is there, the one true God. The God who is there, Yahweh, the I Am, He is so particular and holy 
and intricate in his desires to bless you. He has such exclusive and expansive rights over your life. And he is so meticulous and manifold in his desires and his will to bless you in Christ Jesus that he gives you through the Bible commands that directly touch every single thing that you are ever to do. Everything. How does that feel or seem to you? Right here, in this very spot, in this very moment, you have a chance to to have a window or a cross-section into your relationship with the Lord. There's a binary of how your heart is disposed towards Him. When you hear that He has commands and specific expectations regarding how you do every single thing, even down to the thoughts that you think, you can either trust that His will for you will result in your ultimate good and His glory, or... You can think, well, I'll render enough obedience and comply with his will and demand so that maybe my life goes well or he doesn't send me to hell or my marriage gets better. You will either see him as a loving father giving you guidance for every small and tiny moment and decision of every day or as an overbearing micromanager, a cosmic policeman. How do you feel towards the Lord when you hear a command such as this? There's such benefit to this verse just on a personal level. It gives you such a clear window into your heart, into my heart. It gives... And this is before we even get to the content of the exhortation of doing everything in the name of Jesus. We'll talk about that, but just just sit and marinate in the idea that, that he has specifics for how he wants you to do everything. And take advantage of what that shows you about your feeling towards the Lord. So whatever he says to us, God, through the Apostle Paul, is telling us that God is that specific. So are you tense? Are you worried that it'll cost too much? Are you worried that he'll be overbearing? Or that it'll take too much from you? Or that it will mean too much self-denial? Or do you see through a command like this the door opening? And through that door, light from the Lord himself streaming into the dark room of the dreary monotony that is your life. And through that door, the Lord himself gives you a way to redeem it all. Every nook and cranny of your mundane, repetitive, little life that otherwise would amount to nothing but vanity, God, through a command like this, gives you a way to make it count forever. What a blessing. And he will tell us, what to do in all of it, from our going out and our coming in, from our rising up to our lying down, from infancy to old age, all of it, he tells us how to do it. From dishwashing to cleaning the house to eating your meals, he tells us how to do all of it through a verse like this. He tells us how to sit in traffic because the roads aren't big enough for the amount of people moving here. He tells us how to continue and be patient in the waiting and the working and the wondering and everything. 
God is telling you how to do it and how to do it in a way that matters. And not matters in some cheap sense of sentimentality, right? You can give meaning to something because you can feel emotionally attached to it, like existentialism, okay? Sorry for the philosophy word, but that's what happens when we bring our own meaning to something and we attach meaning to it. But that's not how God gives us a way to make things meaningful. He gives us a way through these commands to make it meaningful forever, regardless of how other people or even you view it. There's other passages like this in the Bible, and he shows us in them how even the most mundane things in our lives, every little thought can bring glory and bring delight and joy to God himself. There's uh, one way to view life where you're only excited about things if you can feel the pleasure of God on your life. Oh, when I do this, I really sense the pleasure of God. But that's not Christian ethics. The Christian way of doing things is what we know from Scripture brings glory to God, regardless of how we feel. I'm not saying it's bad to feel the delight of God resting upon you, but the way that we know that the delight of God is resting upon us is through faith in the Lord Jesus. And I'm not saying you shouldn't be joyful in doing that. You should be. And Train your mind and heart to feel God's joy that you are bringing Him through doing things this way. So I have oversold this to you. I mean, you're, you're looking at the answer right there, the very next phrase. We read it in the beginning. This is how the Lord desires us to live and to do and feel and think in everything we do. Whatever you do, In word or deed, do everything in the name of Jesus. What does that mean? In the name of Jesus. First, I want to state clearly what it does not mean. It does not mean that we simply think about Jesus while we do something. Okay, so I'm out here mowing my lawn, and I'm doing that, and I'm just thinking about Jesus and just kind of forgetting, uh, so, so you create the kind of dualism, so physical matter out here, chores and stuff, and then the life of the mind is over here. That's not what it means to do something in the name of Jesus. It does not mean that we do whatever we want, and then at the end say, in Jesus' name. It's not a silly tag-on. And, and I need you to pay attention here, because this is a central issue. It does not mean to just think thoughts about Jesus while you generally try to be a good person. It's not what it means. Actually, the best way to think about this statement, to do something in the name of Jesus, is in fact through the word authority. Authority, and that may strike you as very odd to say. Consider the Great Commission, though. What did Jesus say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So, 
the authority of Christ is now being expressed or worked out through his followers as they make disciples and baptize them in Christ's name. So that means as Christ has authorized them to go and do. This is the same thing that we see with explorers, right? During the, uh, the colonization age, uh, people would go and explore in the name of the country that sent them. I mean, it made sense because they, they supplied them with money and goods and a ship maybe to get to where they went. So, so Christopher Columbus came here in the name of Spain. Ambassadors still do this today. They go to another country in the name of representing the country that sent them. And that's why I think Paul calls us ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Here's how one commentator put it. Paul therefore concludes in a summary way that life must be regulated in such a manner that whatever we say or do may be wholly governed by the authority of Christ and may have an eye to his glory as the mark. It's a great way to say it. So it means under Christ's authority, doing something in his name means doing it under his authority, or another way to say it would be in obedience to him. And then not just in obedience to him through compliance, but also for his namesake, for his glory, as we seek to spread his name abroad. But what does that mean? Well, just just think through this. God... The God of the universe has commanded you to do every single thing you do under the authority of Christ, representing him to the world under the spiritual banner of his name and seeking to make him famous. That's what it means to do everything in the name of Jesus. And in fact, the Christian life is one of being consecrated to do this very thing. We are set apart, are sanctified by him. This is what baptism means. This is part of the symbol of baptism, that you are now consecrated. You're inducted into the royal priesthood to serve the Lord and represent Him, to mediate Him to the world. So I'm going to give you four biblical ways to understand this life lived in the name or through the name or under the name of Jesus. These are from different passages of Scripture. We've already looked at one. It means under him or under his authority from the, the, the Great Commission, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. And it's interesting that that statement summarizes all of the Christian life. In obedience to Christ is, is essentially the whole thing. Here's another way to think about in the name of the Lord Jesus. It means for him, as that commentator said, with his glory as its aim. This is what Paul says a few verses later in Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So whatever you do, whether it's for your boss or to gain a paycheck or to clean your house or to make something nice or to have people over, it's not for men. The way you are to think about it and the way you are to do it as, is as for the Lord. He's the one you're doing it for. That, that, that's, a, that's a massively transformative mindset where you begin to live not for man, not for anyone else, not for yourself, but for the Lord. And that flavors and alters, even just by a little bit in some cases, what it is you're doing and how you're doing it. 
And this is, I think, what Jesus means when he says, seek first the kingdom of God. But a third way, a third way to think about this is, is by him or, or, or through him in some sense. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 10, uh, 15, 10. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. It's alluded to in the song we just sing. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. It is by the strength that God supplies through his son, Jesus. This is what Jesus himself says in John 15.5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So in the name of Jesus also means we are connecting ourselves. We are drawing on the strength that he supplies so that we can do the things that he wants us to do. So this immediately, I didn't plan on saying this, but this shows you why sin is so offensive. Because you're using the strength that Christ himself supplies you and the grace that God gives you for life and breath and everything, and you're using that to rebel. The last way that we need to think about uh, doing things in the name of Jesus is to please him. Youth, listen up. So So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to... Please him. That's one of their memory verses on Wednesday night. Whatever, whether we are at home or away, and that, that's another merism, right? And a Bible talk for living or dead. Whether we are alive or whether we're dead, we make it our aim to please him. So those four ways. Under him, for him, by him, and to please him. That's what it means to do things in the name of Jesus. This is really... It, it, it's what you think it means. It's as big and as broad as, you, as you're feeling that it is right now. Don't let your mind trick you into thinking that it's not. That's what the flesh wants you to do. This is really a summons to go through your entire life and the life of your mind and the corridors of your motivations with a bulldozer and dynamite and all new building materials and completely rebuild, renovate, and retrofit your entire life. It must be in the name of Jesus or it's disobedience. Even if it looks good and acceptable and respectable on the outside. Christianity, real, committed following of the Lord Jesus is not for the faint of heart. Yes, you, even you, are summoned and equipped and privileged to live every moment of every day of your life for Jesus' kingdom by the strength that he supplies and in order to please him. That's real. That's for you right now, this very moment. And again, this will tell you a lot about your relationship with the Lord. Do you hear all of this and see all of it and say, wow, That's an overbearing ruler of the universe, and he's imposing impossible standards. Or do you respond with excitement? Think about this. The angels don't have to mow their lawn or wash any dishes or take out the trash. So some of their curiosity, I think, is probably owing to the fact that they get to see how you and I, as redeemed rebels, 
get to redeem the little moments of our lives for the praise and glory of our King. How fascinating that must be to watch. Peter says it this way, that we we are a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our job isn't to just proclaim his excellencies when we come here together in this room. It is through the chores, through the work, through the flat tires, through the suffering, to proclaim the excellencies. Not that we would be living some type of Christian musical just singing as we go, but the way that we do it and the attitudes in our hearts and minds while we do it proclaims the excellencies of him. In every mundane thing, it is a quest. It is a calling. And it sets right here before you. It is yours to take right now. He has equipped you by His Spirit to do this very thing. And the, the excitement is also that just, as I've already said, each moment infused with eternal significance and meaning. This is the true core binary, I think, of sin and righteousness. The truth of what is right and wrong in the universe isn't just a list of do's and a list of don'ts. Rather, it is in the name of Jesus or not, or through faith or not, or desiring to please him or not, or desiring to gain him, as Paul says, or not. It is an issue of idolatry. And who who deserves the praise that your heart is manufacturing right now? Your heart never stops. It is a praise and glory and worship factory. And you will give it to something. Will it be to the Lord or not? Whatever it is, are you doing it under, under Christ in obedience to Him? Are you doing it unto him and not to man for the building of his kingdom? Are you doing it by the strength that he supplies? And are you doing it with the aim to please him? If not, and if it's a non-essential, best just stop doing it until you can figure out how to do it for him, through him, and in obedience to him. So are you overwhelmed yet? Is there no simplicity to life anymore? Literally everything now under, under these obligations. You know, sometimes it's just Monday and the trash has to be taken out. Am I saying that even that should be done all for Jesus Christ as well? In obedience to Him for His kingdom, by the strength that He supplies as unto Him and to no one else and in order to please Him? Yes. And one of the ways to understand biblical maturity is growing in your ability to think through how to do it that way. But there's also a biblically sanctioned shortcut. (laughs) If all of that seems a bit overwhelming and a bit confusing maybe at first glance to figure out how to live that way and do everything in the name of Jesus. It's not a permanent shortcut, mind you. We're supposed to keep close watch on our life and doctrine. We're supposed to examine ourselves. And even David prays, search me and try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. 
But the truth is that simply none of us have the time or energy or wisdom to do a full remodel of your whole life and mindset and motivational matrix in even a year, let alone in one sitting. It takes years and it takes a lot of growth. And in some ways, it's a, the reset button is hit every morning at some level. You have to die to yourself every morning and think through how to put on the mind of Christ and to live your life according to His Word and for Him through the strength He supplies and in order to please Him. But there is a very quick way to cut to the chase and live your life in the name of Jesus. And it's right here in our text. Giving thanks to God the Father through Him. If you're confused and if you don't know what it means to live your life and do everything in the name of Jesus or under his authority and how to do your menial tasks and to think about what you have to think about for the glory of Jesus, just hit the pause button on working all that out and be thankful. Let gratitude rule in your hearts. Offering up thanks to God the Father through the Lord Jesus is one way, if not the primary way, that we are to do everything in the name of Jesus. And that's how some of this grammar works. He's not saying that all of it is only done through giving thanks. If you look closely at it, that's, that's what a participle does. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father, and then he says, through him. So even in your giving thanks, you're to do it in the name of Jesus. So it reasserts the centrality of doing everything in the name of Jesus. But he does say it's a primary big way, a big thoroughfare, a big highway of doing everything in the name of Jesus and for his glory if you will merely offer up thanks to God the Father through him. So why didn't we start here? (laughs) Why didn't we start with thanksgiving and, and, and talking about how to be grateful in order to, to color in or fill in what it means to do everything in the name of Jesus. Because I really think we need both sides. We really need to understand that the main objective is to do everything for the glory of Jesus by the strength that he supplies. Because I think what can happen is we, if, if we started with gratitude and we make that central, then we, we could say, well, I feel grateful, so I've done my job. I have a feeling of gratitude, or I'm a generally grateful person. I have gratitude in my heart, so that must mean I'm good. I've I've satisfied this command, and I don't think that's it at all. He says, like I, I mentioned earlier, in the name of Jesus, even your gratitude must be under him. So we need both sides. In the name of Jesus as an independent thought and understanding what it means to live your life for his glory and the thanksgiving, how that primarily manifests. So think of it this way, thankfulness in your hearts to God through Jesus is the capstone of all the rest we've talked about. It is, as it were, a crowning achievement of thinking this way. Because here's the truth, those four things I gave you, obedience to Jesus, seeking his kingdom by the strength that he supplies and a desire to please him, you can do all those things and not be genuine. You can do all those things without love. You can have a mechanical desire to obey Jesus out of obligation. You can recognize, well, he's God, Lord over all, so I better obey him. You can seek his kingdom because you see that there is really no other worthy pursuit. Well, I want my life to matter somehow. I don't want my life to be wasted, so I guess I'll seek Jesus's kingdom because that's the one thing that we know it's not going to go anywhere. And you can acknowledge in a basic sense that your strength is from him. Any good theist says that. 
and you can desire to please him lest he judge you. So you can do all four of those things, not out of love and and a grateful heart. Only a redeemed sinner can be filled with holy gratitude in the way envisioned here and in the rest of the New Testament. Indeed, thankfulness in our hearts being offered to God through Jesus is, in fact, a litmus test to see if we really do love the Lord or not. In fact, lack of gratitude is what Paul mentions first in the descent of the insanity of mankind down into sin. Though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But what is gratitude? And what does it mean to give thanks? This is very important and we need to clarify here because the common mindset of gratitude in the world is that it is primarily a feeling We feel grateful, but it's not. Even though, and I want to be very clear here, even though there are massive emotional components of gratitude, if you don't feel grateful, you're probably not grateful, okay? But just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean that you're grateful. Sometimes I don't feel very grateful, and I find myself oftentimes at a loss to be able to generate gratitude, Or is that just me? Like when Thanksgiving rolls around, you know, like there's a sense of obligation. I should feel grateful, but maybe uh, family things aren't right and maybe financially things aren't right. And it's just difficult to feel grateful and to kind of put on a smile for one dinner eating meat that's going to put you to sleep later on. If it is all a feeling and we get this command to give thanks as we do everything in the name of Jesus plopped down on us, it just seems really impossible. It seems overbearing. Be grateful all the time, you know. Thanks, Lord. But understand this, gratitude is a matter of sight. Gratitude is a matter of sight. Or better, a holistic response, feeling, speaking, and action, as a result of seeing something. And this is what Paul has been doing for two and a half chapters through Colossians. He's portraying to them the salvation of the Lord. He is showing them what God has done. And then he tells them to be thankful. He's portraying Christ crucified before their eyes. And then he appeals to them to be thankful. He wants them to see it. To see the salvation of the Lord. This is what Moses told the people of Israel, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Look at it. Watch the Lord save you, is what He's saying. And to the generation that would enter the promised land, this is how he, uh, Moses spoke to them. And you, have, and you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. And what about us? We don't get to cross the Red Sea. We don't get to pass through the wilderness and have manna fall down from heaven or be saved from snakes. 
by looking at a bronze serpent. I mean, that was a lot of weird stuff, right? But we don't get to see any of it. We get to read about it, but we don't get to see it and, and experience it like they did. What about us? We, brothers and sisters, have the opportunity to undergo an even more profound sight of the salvation of God as we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. See how this works together? As we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, we are stirred seeing the salvation of God to be grateful, to be filled with gratitude and to offer up thanks to God through the Lord Jesus. It's not a literal sight, but what we need and what we can give to each other is a full, rich reminder of the grandeur of all that God is doing in and through the person and work of Jesus. And by the Spirit at work in us, as we see His salvation play out, He gives us a more life-altering sight of His salvation than anything that the children of Israel ever witnessed. Though you do not now see him, you love him. Because how long did it last for Israel? How long did their sight of the salvation of the Lord last and, and, and make them persevere and turn away from sin? A couple of days? A couple of weeks maybe? I mean, bread is falling from heaven and they're unbelieving. They're, they're, they're bitter and complaining. And this is one of the main objectives that we have. This, this is your mission. This is your, this is your uh, sacred charge, sacred trust from the Lord. Every time we get together as a church to put one another in remembrance of what God has done for you in the person and work of Jesus. To, to display before the eyes of your brothers and sisters what God has done for us. This is why we should be teaching and admonishing one another. This is why we should let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. This is why we should sing in all circumstances to remind us, to remind each other the salvation of the Lord. We get to use all our time with each other to make one another see again the salvation of our God. And that is what can create a life of gratitude. And that is what enables us to, li- to do everything in the name of Jesus. And it enables us to do these two sides of the same coin, doing everything in the name of Jesus and giving thanks to God the Father through Him in a way that doesn't become a burden. If you're not animated by the joy of seeing your salvation, then it will become a drudgery. It will become taxing. It will burden you. So whether you can't figure out in the moment how to connect what you're doing or have to do with the glory of Christ or not, and sometimes that's difficult. Sometimes you, you, know, you just got to sweep the floor. You just got to clean out the gutter, you know, whatever it is. But you can be grateful in that moment. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 5, verse 20, which is the parallel passage to this in the letter to the Ephesians. He says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When trials come, if it's difficult for you to connect your response to the glory of Christ and what would honor him in that moment, you can just pause and be grateful 
that the Lord has given you an opportunity to trust him more. When you have to do your chores, as menial and as meaningless as they may seem, you can be grateful that the Lord has provided you with the strength to do them. When you're confused, you can be thankful to the Lord that he has provided you with his word and given you the Lord Jesus himself to see you through your confusion. When you're just trying to discern how to please him, Paul commands the Ephesians that way. He, sa- he says, uh, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. As you're, if, if, you're, if you're a relatively mature Christian, you're trying to work that out. How do I please the Lord in this situation? Even while you don't have an answer, you can be grateful that the Lord is with you even as you try to work it out. And even if you get it slightly wrong, that he's still with you and giving you strength and loves you. What about suffering? What about when we suffer greatly? How do we respond to that in a way that glorifies God? I think many of us are equipped to do that better because many of us have suffered greatly. But should we literally give thanks to God for everything? Does that mean we should thank God for evil? I don't think so. Because the way Joseph responds when his brothers finally come around and ask for his forgiveness or freak out because Jacob died, he says, you meant it for evil, but God intended it for good. He doesn't praise God that his brothers intended it for evil. He rather praises God that in their evil, he worked it out to the salvation of many lives. So even when evil is in the mix and suffering and tragedy and calamity comes into your life, you can be thankful that the Lord has now given you a very keen opportunity to show the watching world and the angels and your brothers and sisters and yourself that Jesus Christ is worth your praise. So what is this to God the Father through Him business? So he's saying, I think, as I've alluded to, do everything in the name of Jesus, including your gratitude. Be grateful in the name of Jesus. So think of it this way. Your offering of thanks to God has to be addressed properly. And if it's not addressed properly, to carry this analogy further, it's returned to cinder. Why? Because Jesus is the one through whom God has blessed you. You have no meaningful or lasting access to anything good except that which was secured for you by the Father on the basis of the blood of His Son. This is why the New Testament pattern is to pray to the Father in the Spirit through the name of Jesus. And that is how the triune God works. He does not bless you in any other way. Paul says in Ephesians that we, the church of God, are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Him. If there's a blessing that exists, which I don't believe there is, but if there's a blessing that's really good and really true that exists that is outside of Christ, I have no interest in it. Because it's not from the Lord. That's why we offer 
our thanks to God the Father through Jesus. An illustration would be, as we are offering our thanks through Jesus, as we're following the correct pattern through Jesus, offering Him thanks, we see and witness all of the blessing coming to us from God the Father through Jesus Himself. And so it stirs our gratitude even more as we're thanking God. If you just thank God directly and all of the stuff that Jesus did is over here, and even if you're thanking Him for that, uh, you're just viewing God directly or trying to access Him, trying to have commune with Him, not through the mediator. So even your thanksgiving must be offered in the name or through Jesus Christ. So I want to conclude with... A few statements about the word of Christ, that is the banner of this text, these two texts, and gratitude, or marrying these things together. How does gratitude relate to the word of Christ? I think this brings it full circle because, this is very important, it is the word of Christ and letting it dwell in us richly that clears the weeds of distraction from our minds. It is the word of Christ and letting it dwell in us richly that softens the hardened soil of bitterness in our very souls. And it is the word of Christ and letting it dwell in us richly that takes root and begins to bring forth the fruit of a joyful heart filled with gratitude. You can't be grateful on your own. You don't have the strength to offer up thanks to God through Jesus in the way the Bible commands unless... You are rooted in the word of Christ. So, four things I want to give you about the word of Christ that leads us to gratitude. That's how this text flows. The word of Christ dwelling us richly enables us to be grateful. Here are four things from Colossians that should stir us to gratitude. Number one, the love of God. The word of Christ shows us how it is that we can come under how we have come under the highest possible expression of God's love. The word of Christ is a message of the love of the Father in action. This is how Paul says it in Colossians 3, verse 12, the first part. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. This is how John says it in 1 John. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. If you can walk in a deep awareness of the love of God, you will be a grateful person. If you understand how He has lavished His love upon you and poured His love into your hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, it will result in gratitude. It will enable you to have the strength to do everything in the name of Jesus because that awareness of his love will so animate you that that it kind of pushes all of the other stuff out of the way. Did you know the Father has given you his very best? He has given you his son to die for you and his spirit to be in you. He has nothing better to give you. And he has done so because he loves you. Number two, hope. The hope available to us through the word of Christ enables us to be grateful. The word of Christ gives us hope in every circumstance and not just in spite of every circumstance that comes along our way, but holistic redemption 
through that hope in every circumstance. That's a complicated way of saying it, but here's the idea, that even when we encounter things where we need hope, like when tragedy strikes or difficulty comes or suffering gets worse, and there doesn't seem to be a way out, through a verse like this and through everything else that's going on in the word of Christ, even that suffering can be redeemed. Even the hardship will result in God's glory. This is how Paul says it in Colossians 1, verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. The message of the gospel is a message of hope. If this is all there is, it's not worth it. It's not worth your time on a Sunday morning if this is all there is. What God gives to you in the person of His Son is hope. And hope does not put us to shame. This is what, how Paul relates this idea of redeeming even our circumstances and our suffering because of the hope given to us. Romans 5, 3-5. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. Number three, transformation. The word of Christ transforms us in so many ways that there are just too many to list right here, but I'll focus on one clearly mentioned in Colossians. The word of Christ shows us that Christ ought to be preeminent in all things. So follow with me on this. He says in chapter 1, that in everything he might be preeminent. So God's plan from before the foundation of the world in creating the world and even uh, orchestrating the plan of redemption was to make Christ preeminent. That's the plan. That's line item number one in God's purposes, to make Christ preeminent in everything. Here's the problem. That goes really badly for you and I if we're still sinners, if we're still unredeemed, if we're still frail and mortal. For Christ to be preeminent even in our lives, if we don't get transformed, is bad news. The good news is he changes us so that even in our lives, Christ can be preeminent. This is how Paul says it later, uh, just in a few verses above, actually, our, our passage today. He says, And you, who are dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. So whereas before, God's plan was always to make Christ preeminent, but here we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And the word of Christ enables us to be alive again so that Christ being preeminent is good news now. It's a good thing for you and I who have been transformed in this way for Christ to be preeminent. And it's going to go on forever. The last thing that the word of Christ gives us as a motivation for gratitude uh, that I'll mention, this isn't the only list, is forgiveness. If you need a motivation for gratitude and everything else is just hard for you to conceptualize or imagine, just major on forgiveness. And for forgiveness to be appealing to your heart as a motivation for gratitude, you really need to have a good understanding of the holiness of God and the, the scandal of sin and how awful it really is. And sometimes the Lord allows things to happen in your life where you come 
really up close and personal with the devastation of sin and how offensive and dark and awful it really is. And then the light of the gospel radically alters our perspective in a situation like that because we know we've been forgiven. The word of Christ proclaims to us that God has done what he did not have to do. Because of his love, he chose to forgive us. Colossians 3, uh, uh, 2, 13 rather. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. Whenever you encounter anything, this is a very easy way to just go from any circumstance to do it in the name of Jesus with gratitude in your heart is to just say, you know what, it's all right, I'm forgiven. Like if, you, if you walk in an awareness of what God's rights are towards you as a sinner, what he is right to do to you because of your sin, and then on the other hand, what he has chosen to do out of love in forgiving you all your trespasses and understanding that that has already happened, You don't need another cause of gratitude in your heart. Hell has to be eternal because God's glory is never fully repaid for what we have robbed from him. And he has chosen to spare you all of it at the cost of his son's life. I mean... Those are horrible realities to ponder, but when you know that that has happened to you and because of trust in Jesus, by merely trusting in the Son of God, that He has counted to you all of His righteousness and forgiven you of all your trespasses, we can be grateful people. We can do everything in the name of Jesus as forgiven sinners. And if you have not today received the gift of forgiveness... Oh, today should be the day of salvation for you. This ought to produce gratitude in all of our hearts. The love of God, the hope that he gives us, the transformation that he works in us so that this is all good news and the forgiveness that makes it all possible. This is how we can do all things in the name of Jesus as we give thanks to God the Father through him in everything. Let's pray. Father, make it so in our hearts that we would clearly see your salvation. Equip us with the energy and the wisdom and the right priorities in our lives that we would help put each other in remembrance of your great salvation. May we be living testimonies to the great salvation of our God. In Jesus' name, amen.